during the lockdown, I read a novel written by St. John Henry Newman entitled Callista. The novel tells a story happening in North Africa, that is today's Tunisia, during the times of St. Cyprian of Carthage, that is in antiquity. The hero, who was a pagan woman working in a shop producing little figures of pagan idols. But in time, the hero becomes a, a Christian. And there's a said a sentence about her. Her instinctive notion of religions was the soul's response to a God who had taken notice of the soul. Newman formulated here a very important truth. Faith is not born from human effort, from our own convictions. We ourselves cannot force ourselves to have faith. Faith also is not something that has been forced upon us by others. We cannot convince people to faith. Faith is not born from philosophical arguments or from other arguments or from social pressure. In a sermon preached to the university in Oxford, preached in 1831, and so in times when Newman was not yet a Catholic and he was an Anglican clergyman, he said to the professors, it is as absurd to argue men as to torture them into believing. We cannot lead people to faith by torture. And similarly, even with the best, the most wonderful, the most convincing, the most logical arguments, we cannot ensure that somebody suddenly starts to believe. Faith is a gift of grace given freely by God at the moment of baptism or even earlier. In the ancient church, there was a long reflection about how is it that in the soul of somebody appears faith and as a consequence, an engaging with God. Faith is not a part of our nature, just like our reason, our will, our hand, or our body. These are parts of our nature. Whereas faith is something extra, which doesn't belong to our nature. Faith is a grace. And there are people who have faith, and there are people who, it seems, do not have faith, or maybe they had it, and then they poisoned it in themselves. They lost it. At the Second Synod of Orange in the year 529, in the 6th century, the church declared, if anyone says that mercy is divinely conferred upon us when without God's grace, we believe, will, desire, strive, labor, Pray, keep watch, endeavor, request, seek, knock, but does not confess that it is through the infusion and inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we believe, will, or are able to do all these things as is required. Or if anyone subordinates the help of grace to humility or human obedience, 
and does not admit that it is the very gift of grace that makes us obedient and humble. One contradicts the apostle who said, what have you that you did not receive? And also by the grace of God, I am what I am. So at this ancient synod, the church rejected a heresy, which was later called semi-Pelagianism. Pelagianism is a heresy which claims that we don't need grace because with our own nature, we may attain moral honesty, moral propriety. This is a terrible heresy, which generates a profound rigorism. If moral perfection can be attained by a purely natural effort without an extra assistance of God, then the one who has not attained moral perfection is treated as somebody who's obstinate, who's, who's evil. Huh? Well, semi-Pelagianism doesn't go that far. Huh? It claims that grace is needed in life. Huh? But it also claims that the first moment of our opening towards God is a result of our natural desiring, natural human wanting to believe. Huh? And so the transfer from the natural level to the level of our engaging with God, either at the beginning of our spiritual life or in every situation when we've gone away from God, is supposedly the fruit of our natural human effort. And so grab yourself, grab your shoelaces and lift yourself up to heaven. This is a terrible heresy but it persists in the minds of many people, and it causes a rejection of our engaging with God, because it seems to be so difficult. And it also generates a completely useless attempt of forcing people, talking people into the faith. If we have such thinking in our minds, we have to wash them out from our minds. And we have to believe, as the church really believes, that if in somebody appears something of this long list of verbs, if somebody seeking, knocking, asking, praying, trying to trust, even though all this may be very weak, very poor, mixed up with human ideas, with discomfort, with uh, doubts, all this is already a sign, huh? that in this individual, the grace of God is already at work. Faith is present there. It may be a weak faith, but it, it's already there. We receive faith at baptism or even earlier. During baptism, we receive a supernatural list of, of goods from God. We receive faith, hope, supernatural love that we call charity, the other moral virtues, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And during baptism, all these divine gifts are installed in our soul. These are divine means that may be developed and may lead us to the heights of sanctity. I like to compare this divine support to a computer program. 
it happens that we have to do something new on the computer and we don't know whether we'll manage. We think that maybe we have to install an extra program, we will have to pay for it, or we'll have to ask some expert to come in and install something in our computer. And it turns out that the program is already installed in the computer and we didn't know about it. And we don't need much for the program to appear on our screen. It's the same with the divine gifts that we've received at baptism. They are already installed in the soul and not much is needed for them to appear on the screen of our consciousness and that they may start functioning in our life. Now, why is faith important? Thomas Aquinas, the Dominican, he tried to look into more closely and precisely describe the working of grace within us. And he gave us a very precise definition of faith. He said, the virtue of faith is a habitus of the mind through which the eternal life commences in us, making the intellect assent to that which is invisible. So first of all, faith is a habit of the mind. Basically, it's in the intellect, but also in the will. And in this capacity that we have from baptism, there are two moments. First of all, faith ignites the supernatural life within us. When there is a moment of faith, there is a meeting of our soul with God. Maybe I should make another gesture. We meet, we touch God. If even for a moment, we have a moment of belief, of faith, my human nature encounters God. And God is such that if we touch God, God immediately gives himself. So when we express faith, this may be during a moment of formal prayer, but it may be when we're standing on the bus stop and waiting for the bus. When we express faith, address the God, there is a meeting of the soul with God. And in this moment, an invisible, as if subterraneous stream of grace touches us and brings life within, brings supernatural life in our soul. In this moment, we don't feel anything, but we are aware of the fact that we have made an act of faith, that we believed in this moment. Whereas God immediately gives himself, and in a silent way, God starts to work in our soul. The second moment, which happens in faith, which is given in this definition that I quoted, is the ascent of the mind to that which is invisible. Now, this second moment may seem to be strange. Why do we have to accept that which is invisible, that cannot be proven? But if we reflect for a moment, we notice that also in our natural life, there are many situations in which we believe other people without a previous scientific checking things out. 
when we're biting at chocolate, huh? we don't check, first of all, whether there are no nails in the chocolate. Huh? We trust unknown people that we meet on the street whom we ask the way. Huh? We trust waiters in a restaurant who give us food. Huh? And we believe that they will not poison us. We don't make a scientific experiment to check beforehand. Huh? This is how we function. Such is our nature. A little baby hugs onto the mother's breast and trusts her. And it doesn't check out scientifically what it will get. So trusting is a part of our life and it makes our life humane, pleasant. We can trust people. If it happens that somebody is living in a country where there is a terrible dictatorship, or there are bloody mafias which are in control of everything, or there is a civil war, and people are afraid of unknown people. Huh? They're afraid of speaking on the telephone because what they will say will be immediately registered and used against them. Huh? Sometimes they're even afraid of their friends and even of their family. Huh? This is terrible, this is sick, but there are such societies. Huh? There is a similarity between a natural faith, the faith that there are no nails in the chocolate, which is a part of our life, and the supernatural faith that we've received at baptism. But that supernatural faith is of a different order. On the basis of that supernatural faith, we can trust God. We can engage with God. And God wants that we will meet him in faith, in faith in which there is trust. Because where there is faith, there is room for trust. There is room for hope. There is room for love. And God doesn't want that our meeting with him would be uniquely scientific, academic, proven with the help of empirical evidence or logical syllogisms. If somebody is approaching God in such a way, then he falls out of a friendly relationship with God and reduces God to the level of an object above which he has power. God doesn't want us to meet him, to approach him in such a way. God doesn't want to be treated like a metaphysical riddle that we will study in a scientific manner. And that's why God hides in the mystery, huh? so that we will meet God through faith and love. Huh? And so this hiding of God in a mystery, huh? a mystery that we can penetrate only by faith, huh? at the same time is a certain revelation. Huh? Because by this hiding, God shows us that he's a personal God that God is not just the cold absolute, the prime mover, the ultimate end. God as if hides from philosophical investigations, which are of course permissible, acceptable, but God hides so that we will unite with him in faith and love. And in this way, God becomes approachable to all people who believe in him. To trust him. God becomes approachable to simple people, 
you don't have to be an intellectual, an academic, to trust in God. Now, in this definition of virtue of faith that I gave, I said there was two moments. The first moment, which is the ignition of the supernatural life, is more important. Unfortunately, in the modern centuries, this moment of the virtue of faith was forgotten, was shelved. And the main attention of reflection was centered on the second moment, the ascent of the mind to that which is not evident. And so there was a reflection on faith and science, on the difficulties which appear in this encounter between faith and the sciences. And it was forgotten that there is this first moment. And basically people stopped wondering, pondering, why faith is necessary? <laughs> What's the point of it? Why is it so important? The first moment of the definition of faith is extremely important because faith enables us to touch God. And then we open up to his mysterious, invisible, but really changing us grace. The American Cardinal Avery Dallas proposed that this first moment of the definition of faith would be translated as the first installment. So when we touch God through faith, God gives himself. And when we touch God again with faith, God gives himself again. When Pope Benedict XVI announced the year of faith, I wrote a book on faith. I write all my books in Polish. But this book I translated also into English. Now, I gave the title to the book in Polish, The Ignition of Faith. And I agreed with the publisher to have on the cover of the book what in Polish, there is a word which has two meanings. It's also in French and in Italian. In Italian, you could say candela. In Polish, świeca, meaning a candle. In French, bougie, but also a spark plug. And I thought to have a book about faith for the year of faith with a candle from an altar, how boring. So instead of that, on the cover of the book, there is a spark plug. And the title is The Ignition of Faith. I wanted to focus on this first moment when I translated the book into English, this play of words wouldn't work. And so the title is The Spark of Faith. Because faith is the supernatural means which ignites the supernatural life in our soul, just like a spark plug ignites the motor in a car. Sometimes in bookshops, this Polish book of mine lands somewhere on the shelf amongst books about cars. In the Gospel of St. Mark, we have described the event which took place in Capernaum. In this small little village, there was a woman who was suffering from a flow of blood. And for this reason, she was treated as being impure. So she was excluded from the community. She tried to find help amongst doctors, 
but they couldn't help her. When Jesus came, she went into the crowd, huh? and from behind, she touched the hem of Jesus's cloak, huh? and she did this with faith. Huh? And St. Mark says, at once she was healed, whereas Jesus was immediately aware that power had gone out from him. When we touch Jesus with faith, huh? immediately, supernatural power comes out of Jesus. We don't immediately recognize this. We don't feel this, huh? but Jesus does. Huh? And for the Blessed Trinity, this is a moment of immense joy because the giving of freely out of love is always a moment of, of joy. Huh? So the divine persons of the Blessed Trinity, they want to experience this joy. And that's why they're awaiting our faith. If we try to resolve various issues of our life only through our natural capacities, well, they don't work. But if, above all, we try to bring in the power of God into the issues of our life, then we have to work on this immediate reaction of faith so that we would turn to God often with faith and trust, that we will commend our problems, our issues to him and invite the power of God into our daily lives. Faith is a virtue, so it may grow. In all virtues and in faith, we may grow. When faith is expressed towards God, huh? um, this may happen sometimes only in extraordinary moments when we experience some dramas, but it may happen also in our daily life, huh? in our daily chores, in daily events. Huh? And the more we invite God to ourselves by our faith, huh? the more faith becomes the central axis of our lives around which all the other issues are, are, are turning around. And even more so, in these various issues of our life, something of the divine power will start being present, being visible. And this is what we want, that the heavens will open above us and something of the divine power will manifest itself here and now where we happen to be at the present moment. What do we mean when we say that we want a faith to be alive? Again, it's good to refer to St. Thomas Aquinas, who introduced a grammatical distinction between three moments of the act of faith itself. He wrote in Latin, and he said that we may believe Deum, you could add uh, the infinitive esse, Deum esse. We can believe Deo, we can believe God, and we can believe in Deum, towards God. Now, credo Deum esse means I believe that God exists. This is a fundamental moment. I declare that God exists, even though I don't see him with my eyes. Credo Deo 
means that I believe God as a person. I not only accept that God exists, but I believe God. I treat God as being truthful. And so I receive the word of God, the word that was sent to humanity and is transmitted in the church. So I accept as truthful what is, what is sought in the church. Whereas credo in deum, the phrase that we have in the creed that we say on Sundays, but in various languages is very translated in various ways. But in the Latin, credo in deum, there is the, this little word in, which means towards. Now, in the Latin language, the word in has two meanings. Sometimes it's followed by a noun in the ablative case and sometimes in the accusative case. When it's followed by a noun in the ablative case, the word in means the location. Where are the chocolates? The chocolates are in the box. Whereas when the in is followed with the accusative case, this means that there is movement. There is movement towards. In Latin, vado in Roma means I am going towards Rome, so entering the city of Rome. And so it's not a question of just the location, but of the focus of the movement. So when we say credo in deum, this means that I am on a journey. I am moving towards God. I am on a pilgrimage. I'm not just standing in a place, but I'm moving, moving towards God. Now, this distinction allows us to notice the dynamism of faith and the possibility of growth in faith. The first two moments, I believe that God exists, and I believe God, I treat God as truthful. This is important, but it may happen that little will result from this. Yes, I accept that God exists somewhere there on a cloud, and I accept as truthful everything that's in the scriptures, what the church teaches, but basically I'm not interested in it. It doesn't have a practical impact on my life. People whose faith stops short at these first two moments, they are Christians, they are in the church, but basically they're standing still. They're not moving. Whereas a lively faith, a faith that has an impact on life, is only when we express credo in them, not only express it with our words, but in our entire being. That means that we grab ourselves, our entire being, all our issues, all our life, our emotions, our difficulties, our temptations, our entire psyche, and we're moving towards God. Why? Because we love God. And such a faith which moves towards God is animated by charity. I move towards God because I'm concerned about God, because I want to be close to him, because I want to base myself on his power, because I want um, that in my soul, a space will be open for the working of God. I want to be a friend of God. Now, that we may express such a faith towards God, through which we touch God, we have this from baptism. 
it was then that we received this supernatural tool that was installed in the essence of our soul, huh? which allows us to encounter God. And then the power of God comes out and changes us. So it's important that we will grow in faith, that we will express it, that we will be accustomed to calling God into many issues of our life. Now, this is not something which is extraordinary. It's not some untypical experience of a, of a high mist, extraordinary mystic. All this is possible on the basis of the graces that we received at baptism. And we don't have to be an intellectual and academic to engage with God. And we don't have to be without sin. Within our sinfulness, within the mess of our life, we can still move towards God. We may be in mud, but if our nose is sticking out of the mud and we're moving towards God, we're on the right track. Now, it often happened in our life that we have expressed such a faith towards God. It appeared on the screen of our consciousness in moments of difficulty and some struggles, in moments of temptation or impossible situations. And then we have expressed such faith. And this was an important moment. Huh? But then often we've forgotten about it. It disappeared from our awareness. That's why it's good to remember such moments. Huh? And it's good to allow that this experience of the touching of our soul and God, that this experience will be renewed, that it will become more uh, renewed more often every day, that it will become more and more deep. Huh? because then the mysterious power of God will start to work more deeply in our soul and it will start to transform us. But we need to nourish faith, for faith to grow in the soul, for it to become the fundamental axis, we need to nourish that faith, we need to feed it. We receive faith out of grace at the moment of baptism or in any moment when we return to God in prayer. But the content of faith, the truths of faith, we receive from the church. So we have this capacity to touch God from the grace, but the contents of faith, the truths of faith, we receive through the church. So for our faith to direct us towards God, we need to maintain this attitude towards God. And to do this, we need certain thought structures, certain contents, which is transmitted in the church. And in the church, we have received the, the word of God, and we've received the uh, catechetical teaching. In the church, we have received the truths of faith. In the church, we were taught how to base ourselves on the grace of God and how to, on the basis of the power of grace, to manage our moral life. And this teaching has been transmitted and it has to be adapted to our intellectual capacities, to our intellectual horizon, and it has to be written into our personal and our social culture. This religious knowledge, 
the theological knowledge is important huh? because it introduces the revealed mystery into our thinking. And in this, our capacity to think is not wounded. Huh? But the power of faith doesn't depend on the extent of our religious knowledge. Huh? Somebody may have received a very minute uh, teaching, huh? which was very limited. Huh? And somebody and may have a powerful faith. You know, because this reaction of sparking God, of, of touching God through faith is repeated. Huh? Is, is, a, is a part of everyday life. <clears throat> and somebody else may have a high class theological knowledge confirmed by academic degrees. Huh? But there may be very little practical engaging with God in the life of such an individual. These are two different issues. The knowledge of the contents of faith is important, but the power of faith depends upon how we practice it and whether we are accustomed to base ourselves on Christ. When we express faith, then uh, the supernatural life grows in the soul. And that life is a life. Uh, so it has an internal dynamics of growth. Uh, but when we express faith, uh, we ignite the supernatural life in us. I will add here a little, uh, a little explanation, uh, a little experience, well, uh, a story. Many, many years back, uh, I made uh, one and only visit to Siberia. This was a moment when communism was falling and I was invited for a meeting at the university in Novosibirsk in Siberia. And in that city, there was a very small Catholic chapel, which that very Sunday when I, I was there became a cathedral. Because on that Sunday in Moscow, the first bishop of Siberia was being ordained. And suddenly he became the bishop of the largest diocese in the world, a diocese composed of three priests. And since I was there, I was asked to go for the Sunday to another city called Tomsk and to celebrate mass there because there was a church there, because the priest who was in Tomsk had gone to Moscow for the ordination of the bishop. Well, I knew then that I was at the peripheries of the church, because if you take a map from Portugal to Alaska, I was about halfway down. Huh? But I knew that from that city of Tomsk up to Alaska, there was no Catholic church. And in Tomsk, there was a church which had been closed for a long time. Huh? But the Catholic faithful have managed to open the church. Huh? And it was only a few months before my arrival there that the church was opened up. At mass, the elderly people were singing in Polish, in German, in Latin, and the young students who had just recently been baptized, they spoke only in Russian of the mass, which I celebrated there. In the sacristy, a woman appeared who was very, she was very moved. And she told me that she had just come from Eastern Siberia. Huh? And she heard that there's a Catholic church. Huh? 
So she came. Well, I know that she came from very, very from afar, from a place which is very distant and cold, but I was there in the summer, not in the winter. And I asked her whether she's a Catholic. And she said, yes, because when she was eight years old, some priest was passing by and he baptized her. And she pulled out her wallet and showed me she had in the wallet a little picture of Our Lady, which was like a postage stamp. And she carried that picture in her wallet always. And she received this picture from the priest who baptized her when she was eight years old. And she was sort of 50-ish now. Her mother was from Latvia. Her mother had been deported to Siberia by Stalin. She was already born in Siberia. Well, I guess by her age that when Stalin died and there was certain liberty and people were being released from the from the gulags, from the labor camps, some priest who was there found her and baptized her. And this little picture, the size of a postage stamp, was probably produced in a prison with some sort of a stamp made out of boot polish and, and uh, soap or something. Now, in her life, this woman received no catechesis. For the first time in her life, she had entered now a church building. And I was the second priest that she ever saw in her life. I asked her whether she received communion at Mass. She attended Mass, but she didn't receive communion. I asked her, do you know what is Holy Communion? In response, she used the Polish word, opłatek, which refers to a wafer that we traditionally break and exchange at Christmas. It's a, a, a Polish tradition, which is a sort of a distant echo of the, of the Eucharist. Well, I, I said to her, no, no, the Eucharist is not this wafer. And in the sacristy of the church, I found a very simple catechism, just a few pages a Xerox copy from somewhere. And there in Russian, I found the explanation of what is the Eucharist, the body and blood, the soul and the divinity of Christ under the species of bread and wine, the formula of the Council of Trent. When this woman read this, this line, a tear appeared in her eye. And she said in Russian, Nada nie mama gavariwa. Yes, my mother told me about this. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Do you want to receive Holy Communion? Yes. So I had to look up also the information in this few pages of the Catechism about confession. I heard her confession, I gave her communion, I gave her that few pages of the Catechism and the Rosary, and she was going back somewhere to the north of Mongolia. Now this woman didn't have any formal training in the faith, apart from what the priest told her when she was eight years old, when she was baptized, and what her mother, long dead, had told her. She didn't participate in any catechesis, but all her life she carried that little postage stamp image, which was her baptismal certificate. She had faith. She had the desire to be close to God. The gospel tells us about three foods for faith. 
Jesus says, I am the living bread which has come down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. And Jesus responded to the tempter saying, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We nourish faith by receiving the sacraments in which the fruits of the complete gift of self of Jesus given on the cross are applied to us, applied to our soul. Through the visible sign of the sacrament, the invisible grace is given to us. We nourish faith when we react to God and his signals, when we are attentive to the proximity of God and we're moving towards him, then we grow in faith. That's why it's important that we every day we will have a special time for prayer in which we express faith. And in faith, we need to believe in the supernatural power of faith, believe that faith touches God. And at the same time, we have to express the fact that we are in the hands of God and we're willing to be moved by God. And we nourish faith when we receive the word of God and the teaching of the church based upon it. We need to introduce the divine mystery into our intellect. Uh, but still, both outside faith within all the sciences and within faith, we still can think and we have to think. We have to form a thought structure based on faith, but we need to penetrate it. We need to go deeper. We need to think. But even more, we contribute to the growth of faith when we practice faith in prayer. Saint Therese of Lisieux, in one of her poems, she describes the liturgical uh, vessels, the, the chalice, the paten, and she mentions also the key to the tabernacle. And she writes, little key, how I envy you that every day you can open the prison of the Eucharist, where the God of love lives. But what a miracle. I too, through the very act of my faith, I can open the tabernacle and hide besides the divine king. When we persist in faith, we can engage with God and we can invite the power of God into our daily, sometimes difficult situations. When we're talking, for example, to some young adolescent who's going through a difficult phase, the emotions are all exploding. We can invite the power of God. And if that individual to whom we are speaking had been baptized, the installed program of grace is in the soul. And so in our conversation, when we open our mouth, we can, in the depth of our own faith, make an act of faith in the presence of God, in the soul of the person with whom we are talking. And then if we say what we perceive to be appropriate, bringing God into that conversation, the young adolescent may not understand immediately, but the words that have been said together with the accompanying grace that has been brought in by faith, these words will have a divine power. They are sown in the soul 
and in time they will appear in the awareness and influence life and action in the appropriate moment. This is why faith is important.